Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Today, we have a very special Better Call Daddy show. My intern, Emiliana, interviewed her daddy, and it's so sweet. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me. It's a pleasure to be here. You grew up in Zimbabwe. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Growing up in Zimbabwe was probably the most idyllic childhood a young guy could ask for. Firstly, you know, the weather is beautiful. It's warm most of the year round. Land was relatively cheap, so people had big plots of land. And a lot of the places you grew up, you had the house, you had a big garden. And in the Great Borders, I grew up in a little town called Bulawayo. And probably five, ten minutes drive outside Bulawayo, you would get out into the bush. And with most people who grew up in Africa, I grew up with a love for wildlife and the land and being out in the bush. And... Most weekends, if when we weren't playing sport, we were out in the bush, and it was just a great childhood. It sounds like you grew up in a small, close community. What was that like? Yeah, it was a very tight-knit community. Like I said, most people have never heard of Bulawayo. It w- was like any small town that you grow up. Everybody knew everybody, especially in the neighborhood I lived. And it was a very safe environment to grow up in. You went to an all-boys school. What was that experience like? Yeah, my high school was an all-boys school, and that was the typical British colonial all-boys school, which I think younger people today would struggle to relate to. You wear school uniforms, very strict disciplinarian, corporal punishment was a large part of the teachers, discipline maintenance, which I think today if they brought that on, they would be sued. It was a rugby-playing school, and every boy in the school had to play rugby and the standing in the school was very dependent on which team you played rugby for. It was like any growing up experience. There were good parts to it, bad parts to it. We received a great education. Do you have any memories from your childhood in Zimbabwe that stand out? In the British system, in the old colonial system, you get streamed. You have A, B, C and E levels. A stream, do O levels, which is when you can leave school in four years, B stream five years. C stream never gets to do O levels, and E stream are just there till they turn 16 and can leave the school. And then you have A1, A2, A3, and A1 is meant to be the 30 smartest kids in the school. Probably by error, I was put in A1. You have one fun class a week, which was woodwork. That was the only non academic class you have a week. And I remember it was my second day at high school. You knew at high school. I go into my woodwork, and the teacher's reading out the names of all the pupils and you're going yes sir yes sir he comes to my name you go i go yes sir and he says come up to the front of the class and i go up to the front of a class and it was a teacher mr walker and he has a baseball bat sawn in half and he says bend over and he beats me three with the baseball bat (laughs) and then i'm trying not to cry and then you got yeah typical british discipline i've got to thank him i go thank you sir and as I'm walking back to my bench, he goes, do you know why I did that? And I go, no, sir. And he goes, don't be like your brother. <laughs> it was an introduction to high school, <laughs> let's say. Did you cause a lot of trouble in your high school? 
Well, it depends on your definition of trouble. Like a lot of young guys, I was probably had more energy than I could let out during the breaks and probably wasn't always as well behaved in class as they liked. And so they'd be getting beaten on a quite a regular basis. But it was just the accepted part of growing up and part of the behavior that existed in the school. In your early 20s, you finally came to the United States. What was your impression of America and how did you adjust to living there? Well, I went to America to go to, to graduate school and then worked in New York afterwards. The reason I went to graduate school in America was to get into America. You know, America to me has always been the land of opportunity. It's a land where everybody can come and make things happen. You know, other countries have different hierarchical systems, but America and New York in that um, felt like if you were good, you could make anything happen. You know, you arrive from a little town in Blue and you go into New York with all those tall buildings, you're, you're just shocked and amazed. It's like the movies. It was a very different. You also realize I'd grown up in a small town where you don't lock your front door which was an experience we had later on in my life when we lived in Japan where you never had to lock your front door. And you arrive in New York and you've got like five locks on the door and everybody's security conscious. And at that time, there were certain parts of Manhattan that were very rough that you couldn't venture into. It was a little bit of a wakening up experience for me because until that time, I hadn't realized people would want to do harm to me. What surprised you most about New York? I think all of New York was a surprise, so... The surprise was adapting. When you've never lived in a big city, you don't know what it's like to live in a big city. A lot of surprises, but pleasant surprises. Let's fast forward a few years. You mentioned that you met your beautiful wife in Manhattan. Your bachelor days are over. And you decided to raise your children in Tokyo, Japan. As most married men will probably tell you, I spoke to my smarter, better half <laughs> who made that decision. She had been in Japan previously I had worked there for a short while we had three kids we had one in New York one in London one and one was born there but when we were trying to decide why to move there when, when we had our third child in New York was we were looking for a place that would be a safe secure environment to raise our children Tokyo offered that it's a uniquely interesting place it's very safe there were good schools there both my wife and I were fortunate enough to be able to get jobs there. And it just seemed like if we were going to raise our kids and be in a big city, Tokyo offered us the best of being in a big city with the security of being in a small town. My older brother didn't go to a Japanese school, but you decided to put myself and my younger sister into the public Japanese school system. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I could say because you and your sister are special. But the real reason was we were living in Japan and we felt that if your kids were going to be there long term, which you both were for your childhood, you need to learn the culture and the language. We didn't want you growing up being this expat living in a country who never gets to experience and understand the country, the culture, the language, the different religions. We thought that would be a great place for you, first of all, to learn the language and be exposed to the culture. And there were good parts and bad parts to it. Your initial schooling year is more difficult because you're the odd one out. You're the only one there who isn't Japanese. But we thought for the long run and for future development, it would probably be more beneficial. And time will tell if we made a good decision. I think we did. You and I have many shared experiences. You know, we have a great relationship. What is one memory 
that we share that stands out in your mind? Well, one memory, there are a million memories. But the one that I think would highlight, which I always like to think about and highlights you to me, was, believe it or not, from when we lived in New York. And you were probably between two or three years old. We had just bought you and your brother these Razor scooters. And he was so excited. And we were going along the avenues. And he just kept on going. And you were so determined to stay with him. And he must have gone 40, 50 blocks. And you were right behind him. You would not give up. And I remember thinking at the time, I was going, wow, this young girl, she's really showing her character. She couldn't keep up, but she wouldn't give up. And she kept going till she caught up with him when he finally stopped to wait for us. It's such an incidental time, and it wasn't a big time, and we could talk about birthdays, holidays, big events, but it's those small times when you see your kids in true light that you go, wow, there's something special. And that, that's what sticks in my mind. I like that one. <laughs> One that I remember that stands out a lot is we used to go to the father-daughter dances at the Tokyo American oh, Club yeah. once a year. And I remember I would go with mom, we'd go to the store, I'd try on a bunch of dresses, find the perfect one, and I wouldn't let you, it was like a wedding, like I wouldn't let you see it until the night of the dance. We always had a lot of fun, I think, at those events. Uh, yeah, those dances were special. No, yeah, don't tell your mother, but the highlight of my year. Though, when we went to those dances, you always ignored me because you only wanted to dance with your friends, but it was great fun. That's all the questions I have for you today. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Okay, thank you for having me on your podcast. <laughs> Thanks for helping my mommy, Emiliana. Let's do a story that you remember about me as a child. Your father thought that you had really a terrific voice and thought that you should be singing on the stage. You were a beautiful singer in the house, and maybe in a small crowd, but uh, you didn't really want to perform too much on the stage, so your father had to push you quite a bit. Even though you're very outgoing, when it comes to certain things, you were either shy or stage presence seemed to be something you hadn't gotten used to. So anyway, we thought that when it came time to go to high school, the Youth Performing Arts Center downtown, we were going to try to get you in. I think you went without me the first time. Did you go with your mom? <laughs> Probably. I don't think you got in. For the first time, you were actually a little upset that you didn't get in. I said, I'd like to really have a meeting with the person that was in charge of making the selection. And it was a Dr. Brown, I believe. Turns out that Dr. Brown was really a master teacher. He could really judge talent. He had quite a voice and was involved in a lot of the shows in Bartstown. And, and the fact is, is that you did an audition for him. And uh, he thought that you had some talent, but that you just didn't have the training like everyone else. And he went on with that you didn't have the credentials and you didn't have this and you didn't have that and you didn't have this. And I says, is that the way you measure talent? Is that the way that you measure success? Or isn't there some ingredients of heart and soul and hard work and perseverance. And if somebody has a good voice, could it be trained and could she catch up? I said, it's just like a horse race, even though she might be at the back of the pack. But if you give her the right opportunity, uh, that she won't disappoint because she'll be coming around that far turn, passing one horse after the other. And when you look at the finish line, 
Italy Rina that crosses the line first. And he was so impressed with that challenge that you got into the school. I think one of the nicest moments for me was that Grandpa Baker and Grandma Baker came to listen to you at, at a studio and you really performed just beautifully there. And then you also got a solo in Carnegie Hall in New York. It's really a dad's dream come true when you can see one of your children, whether it's playing baseball, whether it's playing chess, whether it's going to engineering school, or in this case, being able to hopefully highlight some of her talent in music and be able to go and sing in Carnegie Hall was a big plus. And being able to show that when I stood up for her, that she rose to the occasion and met the challenge, was able to not only get into the school, but graduate and be able to show that she could also uh, sing just beautifully. Another very strong moment was that she got to sing at her college, the national anthem, in front of at least 10,000 people. And uh, she performed just brilliantly. So that is a very proud moment. And to top it all off, I've been telling her for now 20 years that she should open her own TV show. So she better call daddy and just do it. And we're doing it. And we're doing it. How's that? Did I do okay? I'll give you 10 stars. Thanks. I'll take it. I want to tell you about UMAP, a program that shows people who they are and how they'll be most successful. Not only did it win the 2020 Career Innovators Award from Career Directors International, but 100% of UMAP certified coaches recommend the program. Let's hear from this week's coach, Nellie Felipe. This is about not just personality, because personality can change, but this is your motivation, your skills, it, it's your values. It takes everything, the whole person, and shows you a map of you. It's incredible. Imagine if you had that for every client, how much more powerful the coaching will be. I fully endorse this tool and certification program, so check out myumap.com. That's M-Y-Y-O-U-M-A-P dot com. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.